0: It's funny that Jeff's phone's going off because I was going to introduce my my uh, message this morning by saying this, that there's a, uh, uh, on a marquee at a church in France, uh, there's a sign that says, um, if you enter this church, you're likely to hear a a call of God. <laughs> However, it's pretty certain that he's probably not going to contact you on your cell phone. So thank you for turning your cell phone off. If, if you would like to speak to God, come on in, find a quiet place, and begin talking to God. If you would like to see God, send him a text while driving. <laughs> on, a, on a marquee, for real. For real. And a church in France I wasn't quite sure they had churches in France But just to let you know <laughs> Just to let you know You'll we, we'll hear in the media about France And about how dead the church is uh, in Europe Because there's a lot of the uh, older uh, classic churches Built in the 16th, 17th, 18th century That are, are uh, pretty empty but What I want you to know is There is a on fire house church movement in Europe Going on right now So pay no attention to what you're hearing about the bigger churches, and even some of the bigger churches are doing just fine, but but God, and I'll tell you right now, the future of the church, largely in many parts of the world, will be house church, uh, a house church movement that we've had in the past, and it's coming back right now, especially because uh, some of the older churches are just so huge and so big, the sense of intimacy and oneness and closeness, and this is going to be a major theme of what I'm going to speak to you about today, but I want to talk to you a little uh, bit about Ephesians. Um, I I, uh, asked Google a question uh, this, this week, and the question was, what is the most beautiful place in America? And so there was all these opinions came forth, but there was kind of a consensus of what were the most beautiful places. The first one was the Grand Canyon. That was kind of like on the top of everybody's list of the most beautiful place uh, in America. And then the next one was Niagara Falls right there. That's, that's certainly when my brother lived in Buffalo and I went there many times. And, and then the next one is the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. And then my favorite is the next one. My favorite place is the next one. <laughs> It's Laguna Beach. Now that wasn't on, uh, that didn't come up on the Google, but I put it in there. <laughs> because I am partial to Lagunas as I've lived here 49 years, so I put Laguna in there. So there's this consensus of what was the most beautiful places in America. Now, when you talk to Bible lovers and scholars and teachers and pastors and lovers of the Word of God, there's a consensus which is the most beautiful book in the New Testament. And the consensus is that Ephesians, the book that we are presently studying, uh, for many is the most uh, beautiful book found in the New Testament. Now, I disagree with that because I love the book of Acts. As most of you know, I love the book of Acts because I'm a history buff. But Ephesians certainly is up there with my favorite. And I'm going to put a few reasons why up here, why Ephesians is considered by many to be the most beautiful book uh, in the New Testament. So the first thing I want to mention is that it's a book of God's majesty. And as you read through the book, you see God's majesty, you see God's glory... You see the wonder and awesomeness of God in virtually every line, in every paragraph, in every part of the book. You see God and his wondrous ways, how he sees us, the work of Christ, and the work of the Spirit of God in the church. The wonder of God is found everywhere. It has like a fragrance about it. And that fragrance is the wonder and beauty of God. And by the way, this is the most important thing in your life. The most important thing in your life is what you think about God. Now, I say this like about every the time I speak because it's so important. What you think about God is the single most important issue in your life. And if you view God as a God to be lifted up, to be extolled and honored, to be worshipped and praised, that he is the God of wonder, the majestic God, your life changes. You walk in a sense of worship and praise of his name. But if you've got a little God, he's just kind of like a Santa Claus God, he's just there to answer your prayers, then you will conversely, you will have a small walk with that God. And you will not really see God as God truly is. So when I speak, one of the highest prayers that I pray before I ever get up here is, God, when people leave here today, I pray there's something more of you that's been imparted into their lives. You leave here today and suddenly God is bigger than when you walked in. If that happens, I've done my job. Because I've said this another million times. I'm gonna keep repeat these things over and over because there's I, I love doing nothing better than bragging about God. The whole world's bragging about all kinds of stuff. We're bragging about the women's soccer team, you know, we brag about this politician and that politician, we brag about movie stars, we brag about this and that. I think the highest thing we can brag about is God. Amen? Amen. We want to brag about God. I love to brag about God. So He's the God of wonder, He's the God of majesty. He's the God of glory. He's the God who never changes. He is the beautiful God. And we walk with this God every single day. And how we relate to this God determines how we live our life. We walk with God with a sense of reverence. This is why it says in more than one place in the scriptures, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. And that fear is this dramatic sense of reverence of who God is. Not like a cringing fear, like, oh, I'm going to be afraid of God. No, it's this this wonderful sense of God's power and might, beauty and wonder. That's one reason Ephesians is so beautiful. Secondly, it's a book of immense revelation. And Jeff hit this one pretty good a couple weeks back when we looked at the second half of chapter 1, where Paul, as he writes through the first chapter, suddenly decides as he's writing, oh, I think I'll pray for the church. So he stops his little dissertation in which he's talking about our position in Christ. He says, by the way, I'm praying for you that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Wow, talk about a big prayer. God, I'm praying for this church that you would give little church by the sea a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. This is what I just said. All of this is piggybacking off one another. The wonder of God, the glory of God, it's all tied in to the revelation of God. Revelation is walking into a dark room and the light's turned on. You finally can see what's in the room. You walk in and, gosh, I wonder what's in here. You turn the lights on. Revelation is seeing something you've not seen before so second prayer for me to you when I speak God give them something revelatory of yourself today something brand new God shining light in what he has done for us third it's a book of our glorious position in Christ there is no other section found in the word of God like the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 3 to 14, in which our position in Christ is spelled out. It is a stunning masterpiece of God describing who you and who I am in Christ. That's one of the reasons it is so beautiful. And we read last week uh, that uh, Paul tells the Ephesians that we are positionally... Seated in Christ. That means though we walk here, though we live here on earth, in space, in time, in God's economy, we are seated in heavenly places with Him. When you receive Christ, you not only receive Christ into your life, your life is received into Christ's life. And because God has no time and no space separate from us, We are seated with him because God wants us with him. And, of course, that means positionally be there and then one day we will actually be there. And I'm not that far away, actually, and so I'm excited about where I am in life right now. And I'm excited. I mean, what do you think? You're seated with Christ in heaven. Like that's, Lord, give us a revelation of that one. That would change your life for sure. Okay, number four, it's a book of God's purposes in your life and the main main kind of trilogy here of redemption or salvation followed by sanctification and then glorification is beautifully spelled out in the book of Ephesians. And then finally, if you want a book that will just teach you how to live the Christian life, I was thinking, I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought... If I was on a desert island, if I was on a desert island and only could have one book of the Bible, Ephesians wouldn't be too bad. Wouldn't be too bad because it, it has a little bit of everything. It teaches you how to live in suffering, it teaches you how to deal with ministry, to be alert in life. What does it mean to be alert? Like you're, you're looking, you're sober minded, like you're paying attention to what's going on. To be alert. How to live by the power of the Spirit. Uh, There's like, as far as the Christian life goes, you take the fifth chapter of Ephesians, which we'll be getting to in a few weeks, it is like a road map in how to live for Christ. We live through love and through forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive today? (laughs) That's always a big one. Who do you need to forgive today? Well, Ephesians helps us understand that. In purity, Ephesians talks about purity. The greatest passage on marriage found in the entire Bible is found in the second half of chapter 5. But it is such a stunning impartation of the relationship between the husband and the wife, but even more between Christ and the church. It is like staggering what he writes there in that marriage here on earth is just a shadow, a picture, a mirror of what marriage is in heaven when you and I, the church, are joined to Jesus at the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's coming. You might not know it, but all of us here are engaged today. We are engaged to Christ. And there is a marriage coming. And all you have to do is read about it in Revelation chapter 19. You can read all about it there. And then the greatest passage on spiritual warfare is found in the last chapter of Ephesians. So there we go. I could go on and on and on and on, uh, but I'm not. So, so Pastor, we were talking at the staff meeting on Tuesday about what do you like about Ephesians? And, and Pastor Sam said, I love Ephesians because of the beauty of the words that are there, the, the way that Paul describes everything the language that Paul uses, these, these words you don't find in a lot of the other uh, epistles, like, like lavish, like revelation, like the riches of his glory, like his surpassing greatness, like making melody in your heart, like extinguishing the flaming missiles of the evil one, like God's incorruptible love. All of these beautiful, sounds like sounds like uh, almost poetic in the feel of the words. It has a heavenly fragrance to it. It's like angels came and just laid something special over Paul's writing. So now before we look at our text, I want to give you a little background. Now I'm going to have some PowerPoint on the background, but I want you to open your Bibles, and I want you to turn to two places... I want you to turn and put a blue card in Acts chapter 19, and then I want you to uh, put your, uh, then turn to Ephesians 2, which is our text. And I'm going to talk to you, like, now here, somebody's going to have to raise your hand and tell me to shut up when I start giving you the background of this book, because I get pumped when I talk about Acts. I get pumped when I talk about, Paul and and his journeys like I get excited I'm probably the only person that I've ever met that gets excited about thinking about walking with Paul on his missionary journeys but it it excites me to no end alright I'm going to talk to you about Ephesians here and I I need to do this fairly briefly because like I said we'll be here till noon and I won't even get to the second service So, so let me say this first about Ephesians Rome was the most important city in the Roman Empire, but the second most important city in the Roman Empire was Ephesus. It was the it was the city in Asia. Of course, Rome is in Europe. Ephesus was in Asia, and I have uh, been to Asia. Uh, you'll notice here uh, on on B. Uh, Ephesus located on the west coast of Asia, and uh, Nick and I went there about. 15 years ago, uh, back to A, Paul visited um, uh, Ephesus twice. He briefly visited it at the end of his second journey, and then he spent almost three years in this city on his third journey. It was the church that he spent more time in than any other church during his church planning ministries. So C, he had an extended stay on his third trip it was three years, and I'll talk to you about uh, Acts chapter 19 in just a second. I want to tell you of what happened there, and actually let's look at it um, in in uh, Acts chapter 19, which I ask you to turn there. Uh, Paul uh, is, uh, is going to disciple leaders in Ephesus, and he founded a school, it's called the School of Tyrannus Uh, that was the name of the man that uh, that owned the building and in your pew bible I think it doesn't do a good job uh, in your pew bible we're going to look at Acts 19 verses uh, 8 to 10 uh, which is the second paragraph under Paul in Ephesus Uh, but I'm going to read from the New American Standard which I believe has the greatest accuracy in translation of any bible So I'm going to read here. This is Paul in Ephesus as he's spending time in Ephesus. Paul's pattern for going into a city is he would always go into the synagogue first and he would preach to the Jews that lived in the city. He did that everywhere he went if there was a synagogue. There were certain places he went like Philippi in which there was no synagogue. But he always would go to the synagogue because Paul carried the gospel to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So in verse 8 of Acts 19, as background to this book of Ephesians, it says that Paul entered the synagogue in Ephesus and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily or teaching daily, in this school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. Can you imagine? Did you see that last verse? Paul, he he founds this school of Tyrannus in which he's taking the men that he's leading to Christ and the women that he's leading to Christ and he begins teaching them and word spreads throughout all of Asia that there's this man in Ephesus at this school who is speaking the word of God and you've never heard anything like it. You've got to come. And so from all over Asia, that was a huge area. Verse 10, it took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia, in other words, in every place in Asia, the word spread. This guy is on fire speaking these spiritual truths And so Ephesus was flooded with people, many who came to faith in Christ. It's one of the great revivals, although it's only mentioned in this one short three-verse passage. One of the great revivals in the book of Acts and in the early church was this two years that Paul preached the word of God and (laughs) preached Christ. This was Paul's message. To live for me is Christ. To live for me is Christ. Christ is all in all. Can you say that? For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. This is what we're called to. We're called to live in Christ. And Christ would be all in all. This was Paul's message. Jesus Christ has come. And He's died for your sins. And he's rose again, breaking the power of death. And he's ascended on high on majesty. And he now rules as King of kings and Lord of lords. I live for him. My life is given to him. My entire being is consecrated, devoted. It is dedicated to Christ. That Christ might be everything to me. He is my God, my Savior. And he's my friend. Jesus Christ, Lord of all, King of everything. And this was the message. So, now I'm really going to get stuck, you guys, and I have to apologize. When I talk about this number E here, I could go on for hours. These are the men and women that Paul, these were his traveling companions. These were the men that he walked with. And the reason I put their names up, I want you guys to understand, their names are mentioned many times in the book of Acts, but you see their names scattered throughout all of Paul's letters. And you'll see this man, Atticus uh, down here at the third sentence of E, he's actually a man that carries the letter that Paul wrote from Rome. Paul wrote the letter from Rome. But these are, these are like the giants of scripture. These, like, okay, if God said to me, Jay, I'll let you, I'll take you to any place in history. I would want to go. I would want to be with these men. I would want to walk the roads of Asia and Europe with these men. And you notice there's a couple here, Priscilla and Aquila, here in the bottom line. This is the place where Paul lived when he was in Ephesus, and this was the place where the church started. And I was thinking the other day, what would it be like? to sit in Priscilla and Aquila's home, to see Paul across the table and see Timothy and Titus and Gaius and Secundus and Aristarchus and Sopater, to see all these men seated around with me at dinner. Gosh. Oh, it is unbearable to think about it. To these men and women that walk with God like that, that walk with Paul and face incredible persecution. Now when Paul walked into the gates of of Ephesus, these six men, Timothy, Titus, Gaius, Secundus, Aristarchus and Sopater were probably with him. Those seven men walked into Ephesus. Now what's interesting, uh, I'm going to go on forever. So Priscilla and Aquila, just see that name there. All right? I'm going to tell you what kind of what kind of a couple they are. On Paul's second journey, he founded a church in Corinth. Remember that? And the couple that he met was Priscilla and Aquila at first. How come he met Aquila? He met Aquila in the marketplace because Aquila did the same thing that Paul did. He was a maker of leather. He made tents and he fixed purses and stuff like that. He meets this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, in Corinth, stays there 18 months. They host him and the church starts in their house. When Paul leaves Corinth to go back to Jerusalem at the end of his second journey, I know this is like a lot of history. He says to them, you know, I'm going to, I know I'm going to go to Ephesus in a few months. Could I drop you off in Ephesus? They said, okay. And so Paul, at the end of his second journey, drops him off in Ephesus, goes back to Jerusalem, and when he goes on his third journey through the gates of Ephesus, this couple is already there. This is the kind of people that Paul walked with. Then, when Paul left Ephesus, he says to them, by the way, I know I'm going to be arrested in Jerusalem. I'm going to go on trial, but I'm going to plead to Caesar that I go to Rome so I can speak to Caesar, and he's eventually going to do that, and he will be under house arrest. We all know that story. But he said, would you consider going to Rome so when I get there, you're there, and there's maybe a church getting started? And they said, okay. So Priscilla and Aquila... We're right at the heartbeat of the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, and then the church in Rome. Everywhere Paul went, there was this couple. Wow, what a couple. What a dynamic couple they were. All right, so the Ephesian church was almost entirely Gentile. Paul wrote Ephesians from Rome with a letter carried by this man named uh, Tychicus, or some people call him Tychicus. All right, we're going to look at our text now. That's a lot of background. I could just go on forever. I just love this stuff. You know what I'd like to do? I would like to, I would like to do a six-week study of just those names. Yeah. And just, I can show you where they are, like Aristarchus and Gaius were from Thessalonica. Uh, we talked about Epaphrodites. He was from Philippi. Paul probably led Tychicus and Trophimus to Christ in Ephesus. You can follow this trail of these men. I'm telling you, when we get to heaven... And we meet these men and these women, Priscilla and Lydia in Philippi. We meet these people. It's going to be one of the best things going. All right. So uh, I mentioned already, Paul is writing his letter to the Ephesians from Rome, where he is imprisoned. It has been six years since he was in Ephesus. Six years. And he is going to write a letter to the Ephesians. He's going to write three letters all at the same time. He's going to write a letter to the Ephesians. He's going to write a letter to the Colossians. And he's going to write a letter to a man who lives in Colossae, a man named Philemon. Those three letters were all written at the same time. And then a few months later, from Rome also, when he was in prison, Paul wrote the letter to Philippians. But that was a few months later. So Paul is writing six years after he's been in Ephesus, and the heartbeat of our passage here is Paul is reminding these Gentiles of who they were before they came into Christ. So uh, let's, uh, let's look at our text, uh, verse 11 and 12. So the theme of our my message this morning is that the believing Jew and the believing Gentile, they are one in Christ. Now this is not some little thing, everybody, this is not some little thing. You know how we've gone through the civil rights movement and we've gone through uh, breaking down in our society the barriers between black and white or or white and Latino and, and, and we're always working hard at this. Like this is catastrophic in the thinking of the Jew. This is exploding this sense of the Jew being only the covenant people of God and the, the, the thought of Gentiles partaking in God's kingdom is unbelievable to anybody, especially the Jew. But Paul is going to write them and say, therefore, uh, he's speaking to the Ephesian Gentiles, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised by the circumcised, that's Jews, circumcision being the sign of the covenant that God gave back in the book of Genesis. Remember that you were separate from Christ, excluded from the rights of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of God. And there's no, like, devastating phrase in the next one. Having no hope and without God in the world. E. Man, it makes me, I feel like falling down almost when I think about this. You had, prior to Christ, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Does anybody remember when you were like that? Do you remember when you felt like, do you, anybody remember the futility you felt about life prior to Christ? The frustration you felt? Like, what is life all about? Why is there such a high suicide rate all of a sudden in the last 10 years in America? Because of just this, people feeling hopeless, wondering what life's all about. I remember getting out of high school. I thought, well, I'm just going to like really, I'm really going to have fun, you know. So I became a pool shark and hustled pool and went in poker tournaments and played a bunch of blackjack and then partied and then, oh, I mean, girls will do it, you know. And I remember pulling my car over the side of the road one night at 1130 after five hours in a bar and just weeping. I had no idea why I was weeping. The sense of futility and emptiness was so intense, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> and two months later, Jesus came into my life. <laughs> when did he come into your life? Huh? How many of you were trying to drown your, your... Like I've said a million times, the greatest song ever written was by the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. You look for it all over the place, and only Jesus can give you that satisfaction. I've come to give you life, and that more abundantly. And it, and it, and all the pool victories and all of the blackjack games and all of the girls and all of the parting ended up completely nothing. Nothing. But Jesus was gracious and broke into my life. Next next part of our text. But now, (laughs) whenever you see a but now, it's like when you see a therefore, it's a bridge. It's a bridge to what's been just said or what's just happened. But now, in Christ Jesus, who is it in? Is it in uh, some kind of, of, of interesting equation? Is it in some kind of interesting thoughts? Is it in some kind of like uh, something else, uh, some uh, ethereal idea somebody has? It's in Christ. It's in Christ that you who were once far off, once far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Why do we take communion on the first Sunday of every month? It reminds us that the blood of Christ has bridged the gap between our former life and our new life in Christ. That when Jesus shed his blood, it was the only thing that could bring forgiveness for you, you, your sin and my sin. For he himself is our peace. Verse 14, who made both into one and has destroyed the hostile wall dividing us by abolishing through the cross the enmity caused by the law with his decrees and ordinances that he would make the two into one. This is the heartbeat of Paul. I want you to know God has taken the Jews who had the covenant, they had the they had all of God's favor. He has now brought you into the same place. Jew and Gentile, you have been made into one. Establishing peace, reconciling them both in one body to God through the cross by bringing the division to an end. Hallelujah. And he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul writes the Ephesians, and he says, I want you to remember uh, where you came from. If you look, uh, look in your Bibles now uh, to Ephesians uh, the chapter 2, and I'm just going to read maybe the first three or four b- verses here, maybe five verses. This is where those... Greeks, mostly Greeks, these Gentiles were before they met Christ. And Jeff spoke about this last week. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What does it mean to be dead? Like there's nothing going on. You were like dead. Done. Toasted. (laughs) Like there's no life. Like... I have this little swimming pool in my backyard, and every once in a while uh, there's a critter in the bottom of the pool, like a gopher or a rat that fell in there at night. I, <laughs> I get my little scooper and I scoop it out. I look at it and I go, Yeah, yeah, it's dead. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it's dead because I don't want to have to put it out of its misery if it, was, it wasn't quite dead, but it's dead. I look at it, it's wet, it's dead. Apart from Christ, you're dead. Dead. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Here comes my life. Verse 3, prior to Christ. Among them too, you all formerly lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But... There it is again, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. What Paul's writing here now is saying, yes, you've been saved by grace. You've come to know Christ Jesus, but it's more that's happened because now God has made his people, the Jews, the Hebrews, and you. He's taken the two of you who were formerly divided and in opposite camps, he's made you one. See, we can't really understand this far down to two centuries later, two millennia later. We can't really understand the, the shocking news this is to both Jew and Gentile back in that day. God's made us one. We are one in Christ. And then, last passage, Therefore... You are So here's the but now, and then here's the therefore. But what's the therefore always refers to what's been said. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you're, you are members of... Now he's going to say, first, they're members of God's household, and then he's going to say, build upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Who is the cornerstone to the church? Christ Jesus. Who is the cornerstone to your life? Christ Jesus. Who is the cornerstone to everything that we believe? Christ Jesus. Who is the cornerstone to this book? Christ Jesus. He is the Word. He is the Word that became flesh. Build upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy temple. So we go into God's house and then God grows us together to become a dwelling. His presence dwells amongst his people because God loves us to be together this morning. Did you know know that? God loves working in you personally, but God loves it. He's called angels to come. He said, come over here, angels, come. Look down at the little church by the sea. Look at the place is filled. They're here. I'm going to dwell with them. I'm going to dwell in them. This is what it's talking about. We had no hope for any of this. But God says, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to be there. And not only am I going to be there, this thing's going to grow. This thing's going to grow. You're going to grow personally, and we are going to grow corporately as a people. Because that's what we do. We go from glory to glory, says 2 Corinthians 3.18. We go from glory to glory. A lot of it has to do with we go from trial to trial, from suffering to suffering. And each one of those times you go through it and we have victory, we go from glory to glory. And here God dwells with us. And we now have all of this division broken down. All right, my time is over. I honestly would love to be able to speak to you for another half hour. I don't have time, but I'm going to end with this. I'm going to show you a picture of a man. This is a, this is a Cambodian man. I was, in, I was in Phnom Penh in 1997. And I went to a prayer meeting every day at a second-story building in Phnom Penh in which there were 125 uh, Cambodian believers. And there was huge maps of Cambodia everywhere. And the pastor's wife, her name was Deborah, had a big rod, and she was was pointing to various places uh, in Cambodia that were on these maps, these cities and these provinces. And 120 Cambodians are standing on their feet crying out in unison, oh God, reach this province for Jesus. Reach this city for Jesus. Reach this place for Jesus. God, come for Cambodia. They're crying out. They're standing. They're clapping to God. They're shouting. I mean, they were going for it. All right? And then, the last day I was there, uh, Deborah says, all right, I want you to pair up. And I want you to pray together to end the meeting today. And so... I look around, and I end up with a guy like this, right here. This guy, except he had a goatee. He had a goatee, kind of like Chris's. Not quite as manicured as Chris's, but, and so I didn't know what the heck to do. Like, I'm with him, he's looking at me, and we sit down. I I cross my legs, we sit down, he crosses his legs, our knees are touching. And I just look at him, and I smile at him, hello, how are you? And, uh, And then there was a moment in which everything froze. I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me. We both started crying at the same time because I'd never met him. I couldn't speak his language, but we just read that we made two into one. We realized that in a moment of revelation. I reached my hands out, and he reached his hands out. We took each other's hands. And I prayed in English. And then he prayed in Khmer. And when we were done, we stood up and we embraced. God had taken down the dividing wall between Cambodian and American, between an Asian and a Caucasian. And he had made us one in Christ. Whenever this man found Jesus, whenever I did, it had happened there at some point where we weren't even together, But at that moment, in October of 1997, I was holding hands with this Cambodian man, and we were one in Jesus. And it was the most beautiful moment of my life. It was stunningly beautiful, because God had made us brothers, and we'd never even met each other. Let's stand. If, um, by the way, if there is anybody here this morning, if there's anybody here this morning, and you've never entered into this covenant with Christ Jesus, you have never, ever opened your heart to Christ and said, I want to give up control of my own life. Jesus, take control of my life. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you pay for my sins, and I want to have a new life. This is what Jesus said. I offer you life, and that more abundantly. I offer you a new life. And this morning, God would say, if you're here this morning, you may have been coming to this church for a year or several months, but if you would like to give your heart to Christ this morning, and you never have, or maybe you've been coming to church for a while, you think, well, just coming to church makes me a Christian. I'm sorry, it doesn't. You become a Christian by saying yes to Jesus. You say, Lord, I give you my life. And so I'd like everybody to close their eyes. Everybody close your eyes. And I want to give you opportunity. With every eye closed and maybe your head's bowed, if there's anyone here this morning and you've never given your heart to Jesus, And God wants to make you brand spanking new that you can know God and you can know that when you die, you'll go to heaven and there's no question about it. If you would like to ask Jesus into your life, I'd like you with every eye closed to raise your hand that this is the day, today is the day that you give your heart to Jesus. Is there anyone here who would like to do that? I see one hand. I see two hands. Lord, you see these hands, but more than that, you see these hearts. We give you these two that raise their hands, Lord. We give you these two. They're making this commitment now. And you know the hand raised is the hand of faith. And I bless the two of you who've raised your hand. And may God show you all that we've been talking about, the wonder of God here in the days ahead. Lord, we take these two now and give them to you that raise their hand. And we say, Lord, thank you that you've said if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. Let's give a round of applause to the two who raised their hands, huh? Yeah. And let's give one more applause just to God himself. How about that? Woo! All right, got nothing more to say, got nothing more to do. Uh, There'll be some folks up here to pray for you. If, uh, If you want to talk to me, I'm quite happy to talk to you. Have a blessed week, everybody, and remember what we just heard today.